Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. We do pray that you would encourage our hearts and our souls today, that we might find our hope ultimately in Christ and Christ alone. We pray that you would be with uh, Miriam's family. We thank you for um, your work in her life and um, her faith in you. We pray that you'd help us as believers to find hope in uh, something that seems as uh, just defeating as death, and yet we know that you give us the hope and the grace. So we pray for that now in Christ's name. Amen. On June 6, 1944, one of the most pivotal battles of World War II took place on the beaches of Normandy, France. Over 4,000 Allied troops died on D-Day. That's 4,000 men who died not knowing which way the battle would go. 4,000 Individuals who died not knowing which way the scales would tip, not knowing who would win and who would lose. Of course, we know that uh, there was a victory, and yet it was a victory that they would never realize, a victory that they would never enjoy, and a victory that they would never participate in. It was a victory that they would secure for others, but not for themselves. And for this reason, the victory of D-Day and the eventual victory of World War II is one that is bittersweet. It is sweet because of the victory in battle. We have certain times in the year where we celebrate those who have died to bring us the freedom that we have here in America in this very country. And yet, it is bitter because of the thousands of lives lost and the high, high cost of that victory. And while there was a victory, it certainly didn't seem to be the case for those men in their dying breath. Death is an enemy, death is unnatural, and death was not supposed to happen. This was not supposed to be this way. Human beings were designed in the Garden of Eden by God to live forever, to live for all of eternity. And you may recall the very first time in Scripture that the possibility of death entering this world was first narrated to us. In Genesis 2, 17, the Lord said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The first mention that the possibility of death would enter this world. And what was at that time only a faint possibility on the horizon, is today part of the regularity of life. Death has been called the great equalizer. We might say that death does not discriminate. It takes the rich, the poor, famous, the king, the peasant. It takes everyone. And of course, the human responses to death are many. Some people have welcomed and embraced and even loved and celebrated death, essentially becoming friends with the enemy. Some of you have heard of a news story recently where there was a uh, Canadian veteran. uh, She was seeking help uh, to get a stair lift installed in her house. And uh, the Canadian Veterans Affairs Office reached out to her as a response to a help 
to get this stairlift installed and said, you know, if life is too hard for you, we could help you commit suicide. Some people are fascinated with death. They are colluding with the enemy. I think, though, if we could lay out all of the human responses to death, they are many. I think I would say, probably from what I've seen, is that most people tend to ignore it. We tend to just kind of push it out of our minds. You may remember uh, when you were eight years old or thereabouts, and when the prospect of your own death entered your mind, you thought to yourself, that's something that's 10,000 years away from me. That, that, that will never happen. And then, some, and, and then you get to the end of your life and you think, man, eight years old was just yesterday. <laughs> Anytime death is brought up, we have a tendency to quickly change topics or to put it out of our minds. Uh, and and that, b- besides that point, besides the obvious fact that death is an unpleasant thought, nobody wants, to, n- nobody I would say in the right minds, wants to say, let me think about and ponder and wonder and all this stuff about the manner of my own death. Besides that, I think there is another reason why we have a tendency to push these thoughts out of our minds. And I think, I think that it's this. Death is something that many of us uh, simply just don't know what to do with. <laughs> I don't have a category for this. Where do I put this? How do I think through this? Here's why I think that we have a hard time uh, figuring out what to do with this. How can Christians say that death is defeated and that we are victorious over death when everybody without exception still dies? I mean, we, we talk as Christians about death is dead and Christ is victorious over death and we are victorious over death and everybody dies. Imagine this scene. Imagine a general and his troops are surrounded. They've laid down their arms and there is no hope of escape and the troops are taken into a POW camp and they are imprisoned. And one of the soldiers, while he is in prison and all hope has been taken away, he shouts out, you are defeated and we have won. All you need to do to respond to this soldier is to simply say, open up your eyes. Have you looked around? Have you seen that we are imprisoned? We have lost. They have won. And this is, I think, how the Christian feels sometimes. The Christian says, death is conquered, and then the unbeliever walks up and says, open up your eyes. (laughs) Are you blind? Look around you. How could you talk about death in terms of conquering it when you can see that it's all around you? And so what are we to do with this? What are we to do with the reality that we say death is conquered and yet everybody still dies? We may be even willing to say death will be conquered, but how can we possibly say death is conquered? And that is the question that we will answer today. We can simply ask it this way. Is there any hope in death? Is there any hope in this at all? We're going to look at... Uh, really three different topics today, or three different sections. We're going to see that there is an apparent victory of death. There is the nature of Christ's victory over death. And then we're going to ask a question. A victory too late? Question mark. Death has, we might say, a pretty good track record. Outside of 
Enoch, and Elijah, every human being who's ever walked this planet has died. Some more than once. Lazarus died more than one time. And there are other people that we read about in Scripture who have died more than once. If you go to a graveyard, you will see the tombs of men and women, some who are influential, some who, whose life has faded from all remembrance among men. And one day, unless the Lord returns before then, your body, 100 years from now, unless the Lord comes, 100 years from now, everybody in this room, your body is going to be rotting somewhere in a tomb, being eaten and consumed by worms. Psalm 49 in verse 10 says, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. In Ecclesiastes 2.16, Solomon writes, The wise dies just like the fool. Likewise, Scripture makes repeated references to the fact that life is a vapor, that it is a mist that appears and then vanishes. It would seem then at first glance that victory goes to death and not to the Christian. After all, what argument can you offer as a Christian that dying, being put into a box into the ground, rotting, getting eaten by worms, and turning into dust can be described as victorious? To go back to the war illustration again, you imagine the soldier you know, standing on the battlefield, he is the last of his troop, and everyone else has died on his side. And he looks out at the field, and he sees all of his dead friends, and he sees all the enemies are victorious, and he shouts, we have won. You think, this guy is crazy. It's like there's no category that exists in our minds for labeling that as a victory. That is losing by by every standard, every yardstick, every category, every measurement, every label, every rule, every requirement, every gauge, every guide, and every paradigm, the Christian loses, and he loses by such a significant degree that it's laughable. What? (laughs) You've won? Look around you. Open up your eyes. We all die. At least that's what it appears to be. But appearances are deceiving. And not everything is what it seems to be. In order to understand the hope that the Christian has in death, we first need to understand the nature of Christ's victory over death. This is foundational for us being able to even begin to talk about what happens to us. And before we need to try and discern our relationship to death, we need to uh, discern Christ's. In Romans 6, 9, we read this. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death has no claim on Christ. It has no hold on Christ. It has no authority over Christ. Christ is Lord over death. He has conquered death. He is victorious over death. 
and death has no dominion on him. Christ has conquered and vanquished that old foe, that old enemy, death. Though he did die, he was raised from the dead so that death no longer has any dominion over him. In Acts 2 and verse 24, we read this. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was impossible that death could swallow up Christ and claim him forever. We know this. We know that Christ is Lord over death, that he has this conquered enemy on a leash, but there's a, there's a nagging question that goes through our minds, and that is this, okay? If this is true, then why do we still die? If Christ has conquered death, and if he is sovereign over it, and if death has no claim on him and, and no dominion over him, then why is it that Christ's people still die? Is this, we may ask, a victory too late? I want to read to you a verse from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, a.k.a. those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Here's what was going on, and here is the concern of the Thessalonian Christians. They, they were thinking, yes, okay, fine, there's future victory. What about everyone else who's already died? They, they've are, okay, so, so Christ returns tomorrow. <laughs> there's all, all these people who are already gone. What about them? You may think of a great work of fiction where there are battles, or even think of a, a real battle of this world, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II. And you look at some of these battles where victory came, but we mourn because victory came too late for some. The soldiers, in our opening illustration of D-Day, helped to secure a victory, but a victory came too late for them. In other words, there are some who don't come home. Victory came too late. Narnia is saved, but not for some Narnians. Middle Earth is saved, but not for Theoden. America is saved, but not for the fallen soldiers on the beaches of Normandy. We might express this in the form of a question. Is it true that just like some soldiers don't come home, that some Christians don't come home. <laughs> All of these people have already died. The Thessalonians were wrestling through this reality that yes, maybe Christ is going to come and there's going to be a future victory, but what about all of the people who've already gone before and died? Is the victory too late for them? 
we find ourselves in the same position as these Thessalonian Christians. We think to ourselves, okay, I understand that death is defeated. I believe that Christ is victorious over death, but it sure doesn't look like it was defeated for those who've already passed away. Are Christians who have already died, like those troops on the beaches of Normandy, are they counted among the fallen never to rise again? Did they miss out on the victory celebration? I want to read to you um, what I believe is a very insightful statement uh, from one commentator that addresses the answer to this question. And then after I read this, I'm going to read to you what I think is uh, one of the um, uh, best verses in Scripture to direct this, uh, to, to address this head on. I want to read to you uh, what this says. This commentator says this, Death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do further harm while all the harm which it has wrought on God's children remains. The tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those that were wrecked still lie in ruin. The destruction of death is far more intense. Death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. Yea, more. For these bodies will be uh, restored, not merely again to be flesh and blood, but henceforth to be incorruptible, immortal, spiritual, and heavenly. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch that at the very beginning of verse 38, it includes as one of the things that cannot separate us from the love of God is death? Did, did you see that? It's, it's not as if, oh no, wait, he died. She died. Uh, it's too late for that one. Hopefully we'll secure a victory for all those who are left. No, 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 no. It's even if we, we cross that point of supposed no return, that even in that moment with our bodies lying in decay in the ground, that we cannot be separated from God. That, that, that is how expansive the victory that Christ has over death is, is that even if death takes you as it will, unless Christ comes back, that that is not a victory for death. Not even death will separate us from the love of God. God is, did you know that God is the greatest storyteller 
One of the reasons why is because his stories are not great works of fiction, but that they are true. When we open up the Bible and we read what we sometimes call stories, just be aware that if someone does use the word story, we're not using it as if it were a story of fiction or a fairy tale. We are saying, look at this story that God has written that is true, that actually did happen. It's one reason why God is a good storyteller. But one of the reasons why I would propose to us that God is the greatest storyteller is because of the way that he brings victory into his stories. Take Christ, for example. The victory of Jesus Christ was revealed after he died, not before. Isn't that a great story? I mean, I mean, if, if you think of any other work of, 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 uh, that someone has written, uh, if, if you think of any, any story, that person, whoever it is, has to be rescued, has to be saved before death comes. Because after death, it's too late. But in God's true story, victory comes after it seemed like it was hopeless. It seems like, you know, in, in some of these great works of fiction, there's still hope because they're still alive. There's still hope because they're still alive. There's still hope because they've died. There's no more hope now. And yet here in Scripture we have, he's died. Oh, there's no more hope now. No, wait a second. He's victorious even over that. Even in that moment, Christ is victorious. The victory of Jesus Christ was revealed after he died, not before. This is a complete reversal of all expectations. In every other situation, in every other scenario, in every other story, death means defeat, but not for the Lord. In his sovereignty, he takes people to the end and then reverses everything so that the apparent victories of the enemy is actually the victory of his people. Death reversed. Death undone. For this reason, we are exhorted in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You look at Matthew 10, 28, and we're told, don't be afraid of dying. How, how, how could somebody possibly say that? The only world which that exists a possibility to be able to say don't fear dying is if death isn't the end and it doesn't defeat us. It is only in a world where Christ is victorious over death and undoes everything that death does that we can go into death with confidence and without fear. Yet, death is still a part of this world, but it is only a shadow. Therefore, we are not to fear death because of the victory of Christ. Let me kind of wrap up a few thoughts here. Where are we supposed to go with all of this information? 
Normally, any system put in place by people has several failure points. You might say backup systems, right? Hospitals have generators ready to go so that if the grid goes down, they can continue providing power in order to keep their patients alive. There's a backup system in place. There's uh, multiple points here. Many of you have backups of your data so that if your computer hard drive fails, you have cloud storage or you have an external hard drive so you can recover your data if that first one fails or you lose it. A bridge may be over-engineered so that it has more than sufficient strength to carry this load across. You can purchase for your basement uh, backup systems for your basement's sump pump. If your primary pump fails or if the electricity goes out or something like that, you still need to get water out of your basement. And so there are backup systems you can purchase for that. Systems that have one failure point are risky. In fact, there's an example of this. In 2016, uh, the, the Nipagon Bridge in Canada failed. This bridge uh, was lo- is located on the Trans-Canada Highway. Anyone ever hear of this story of this bridge that failed? Nobody? Okay. This, is, this bridge is at the northern uh, part of Lake Superior. And if you look at a map... Uh, of Canada, uh, this Trans-Canada Highway, you'll see that this bridge is the only way to get from here to here for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. And this bridge failed and had to be shut down, and um, for days and days and days, cars, finally they were able to... um, fix it sufficiently so that they could use one lane of traffic, kind of a band-aid to get people across. But for days, people actually had to go, go, when you go home, look at the map of Lake Superior, people had to drive all the way around Lake Superior into the United States to go all the way around to get where they were going. This is the only point that connected eastern and western Canada. Okay. This was a single point of failure. There were no backup systems. There were no alternate routes. There was no other bridges that they could easily go around. It was just one point of failure. We might say it this way, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And the reason for this is that anything created by mankind, especially living in a fallen world, is going to have a vulnerability somewhere. It's going to have a weakness somewhere. You have to have backups because you don't trust the original 100%. Maybe you trust it 98.7%, but you don't trust it 100%. It's, It's somewhere in history you can find an example of this kind of a system failing in this kind of a way. What if, though it were possible to have a system in place that you could trust 100% of the time. If that were possible, then you would not need a backup in that particular scenario. With death, 
we have a single failure point. There are no backup systems in place. There are no caskets equipped with AED units. When you die, you're dead. At that moment, all of your eggs are in one basket. There is no backup. There is no alternative. Everything hinges on one thing. And everything about your life from the moment of your death forward, everything about eternity hinges on one thing, whether or not you trust one thing. No backups, no alternatives, no other bridges, no external hard drives, no backup sump pump, nothing. It all hinges on one single thing. In fact... So crucial is your trust in this one thing that you must relinquish all other lifelines in order to trust in this one thing. You must relinquish all other backup plans, all other hope. You must put all of your stock in one place. And in this situation... You must put all of your eggs in one basket. What is that? It is Jesus Christ. He is trustworthy. He is able to be trusted. He is worthy to be trusted. And if you build your system based on all these backup plans, then you're showing that you're not trusting in Him. We asked this question. Is it true that some Christians don't come home? Remember we asked that question earlier? Just like these bodies on the battlefield, well, maybe there's hope for for the next generation, but for this generation, there's no hope. And we ask the same thing. Is that true for all the Christians who have gone before and already died? Would we say that hope has come too late for them? And we have to answer with a resounding no because of John chapter 6. John chapter 6, 39 through 40. Jesus Christ says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. How many things, how many people, how many of his own children will Christ lose? None of them. I will lose nothing but... I won't lose it, but this will happen instead. I will raise it up on the last day. Christ promises his own children that he will not lose a single one of them, no matter how obscure they are, no matter how popular or not they are, no matter anything, he will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone 
who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. He does not say, for this is my, the will of my Father, that some people who look on the Son or that, uh, or that a few who look on the Son, everyone without exception who believes on Christ has this assurance that you will be raised up on the last day and that death will not have dominion over you because of Christ. Death is, we might say, no obstacle to God. All Christians come home because Christ will not lose even one. You are as secure in Christ the moment you take your last breath as you were the moment of your initial salvation as you will be after you have been in heaven for 10,000 years. There is no variation. There is no up and down. You are consistently held by the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ. Everything hinges on him, and Christ will never disappoint. Chrysostom writes this, For whence, after all this, is death to prevail? Through the law? Nay, it is done away. Through sin? Nay, it is clean destroyed. Satan has no power to condemn. The law has no power to condemn. The Christian is victorious through Christ. In fact, death is a testimony of how thorough Christ's victory is. Death is a testimony of the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. Because what can you do when you're in that casket? Is it, can you do anything? I mean, when, you, when you're... Do you sit in that casket and you think to yourself, man, I really need to think about getting up now from this and getting back to life. <laughs> you have nothing. You know what that's a picture of, by the way? You know what your physical death is a picture of? Your spiritual death without Christ. What, what can you do when the Bible speaks of us being dead, Ephesians 2, in our trespasses and sins? The Bible, does, the Bible does not picture, I know that this is a very popular conception today of salvation, but the Bible does not picture Christ as, as reaching down so far, and then the Christian has to come and say, I will reach up this far and meet you in the middle. That's the popular conception of what salvation is today, Okay. You were dead. You you did not have an arm to reach up with. Christ had to reach all the way down to the person who was dead in the casket and not only give them the the will, but, but he had to give them life itself. This is what salvation is. What do we do because of this? We attribute our salvation wholly to Christ. You... You know, that is it, is it Owen that says you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary? Okay. You, you, your contribution to your salvation is the same contribution 
that a dead man in a casket will make to his resurrection. There's, there's no contribution there. It is solely of Christ. Who should be worshipped then, by the way? Who do we worship? Christ. He's done it all. As Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? <laughs> where is it? Taunting the enemy. <laughs> you, what can you do now, death? Nothing. Appearances are deceptive. Christ died, but he rose again and conquered death. In the same way, we do face physical death and apparent, apparent, not actual, apparent defeat. But because our hope is anchored to Christ, we have the hope, yes, the guarantee of a resurrection. We will share in the spoils of victory because of Jesus Christ. My exhortation then to everyone here today is this. Anchor your hope in Christ. This this is a message, yes, hopefully of encouragement to those who have died before us. And this, yes, also is a message of encouragement to those of us who are in Christ because of our future resurrection. This is also a message to any person here today who is not trusting in the gospel to repent and believe on Christ. He is trustworthy. Trust in him. The Heidelberg Catechism says this. You're familiar with this, the question and answer format. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, Not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I would exhort us today that we would cast ourselves unreservedly upon Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in him. He is thy only comfort in life and in death. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and its sufficiency. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ and the salvation that he has secured for us and the hope of a future resurrection. We pray that you might help us as a body of believers here to uh, increase our hope and trust in you. And if there be any here who do not trust in Christ, that you would bring them to repentance and faith in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.